The planet just hit a big milestone this week, a world population of 8 billion people. A hundred years ago, we weren't even at 2 billion, and now we've quadrupled that. Here with the details and other science news of the week is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American based in New York. Sophie, so good to see you again. You too. Let's talk about this. How much of that population growth has happened in recent decades? I ask because I remember from my Ecology 101 course that Mm -hmm. population does not go in a straight line. That's right. It hasn't been a linear increase. Once it starts growing, it starts growing faster and faster, although it does look like the rate of growth is going to start slowing down now. Um, so especially earlier in the um, in the 20th century, we had a lot of improvements in public health and in medicine. Uh, and so a lot of this increase in population is because people who would otherwise have died in childhood of diseases that were spread through um, through unhygienic uh, waste management practices or through childhood diseases that we now have vaccines for, they were surviving childhood. And so that was increasing the population. And at the same time, fertility rates weren't necessarily dropping to uh in, in mm-hmm. proportion to that, so that's why the population has just kept going up. How do they know it's eight billion? Do they count every single? They don't <laughs> count every single person, right? That would take a really long time <laughs> and a big effort. No, they've got models, and according to the latest, most updated UN models, uh, eight billion was hit roughly Tuesday of this week. D- roughly Tuesday. Roughly Tuesday. <laughs> Give or take a few hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's switch gears a bit and talk about something serious. Uh, COP twenty-seven, the climate conference taking place in Egypt, as we talked about it last. Last week, there hasn't been much progress on the climate front, but there was some, right? That's right. There has been more movement to grant funds to more impoverished countries that already have some electricity, but they're using coal or other fossil fuels mm. to 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 fuel that electricity. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is this funding is going to them to help them transition to more green sources of energy, to renewable energy. Are, are these the poorest countries we're talking about, or are they left in the dust again? As they the have poorest been? countries are, again, left in the dust. And this is a problem. So countries, there's been funds for countries like Indonesia and India to help them transition from, um, from coal to greener sources of electricity. But countries like Somalia, which already many people who live in Somalia don't even have access to electricity. They're not producing these greenhouse gas emissions, and yet they're suffering some of the worst effects of climate change with drought and lack of water. And they just don't have the same funds available to them that these other countries do. Yeah, so if you're a poor country and you aren't moving towards renewables, no matter how small your carbon footprint is, you're sort of left out. Right. Right. There's been some talk of maybe eventually getting funds to these countries, but for a lot of the people who are living there, that's just, you know, vague future promises aren't enough. A lot of people have been already been displaced and had to to just leave because they can't support themselves. They can't they yeah. can't live there. And climate change is making people move too, right? That's yeah. right. Climate change is driving a lot of migration all, you know, in a lot of countries where they're suffering the worst effects of climate change despite contributing the least to yeah. it. Yeah. Speaking of carbon footprint, let's let's talk a bit about uh, clean energy. There's a plan in the works that is quite literally out, out of this world and that's putting solar panels in space. This is something not a, not a new idea, is it? This idea, but yeah, it dates back to the 60s. Yeah. And um, 
The problem was in the 60s, the idea of putting a solar panel up in space was just not technologically feasible. But we're starting to have the technology for it. And so this old idea is being revisited because if you put a solar panel on the ground, it's not going to have 24-7 access to the sun because it's not daylight all the time. And then there's clouds that come and cover it up. So it's not as consistent. If you take that solar panel, put it on a satellite in orbit, you all, all of a sudden have more access to that solar energy and you can actually use microwaves waves to beam the energy from space back down to Earth. Would you have to be careful not to fly into that beam? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, there would be a lot of logistics to be worked out. Uh, that's <laughs> So there. despite that, you know, I think it sounds quite complicated, but there's multiple different groups that are currently yeah. working to make this happen in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe, uh, Japan, China, all, all of these places. There's researchers working on pilot projects and estimates on how to make this type of thing happen on Earth, but also possibly on the moon. What, you mean putting the panels on the moon? Or just when you're on the moon, you need your electricity? When you're on the moon. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Artemis program from NASA, they want to send humans back to the moon and... If they have, if they want to set up installations on the moon's surface, where are those installations going to get power from? There's some suggestion that they might be able to put a satellite in orbit around the moon and have that be gathering solar power for some of the installations on the and, moon. And on here on, on Earth, the, yeah, I'm sorry, on here on Earth, you could make. Uh, power available to off-grid communities too, right? Exactly. So if you're not someplace where there's an energy infrastructure connecting you to the grid, you could still get access to energy that's beamed down from uh, orbit. Well, as you say, we've been talking about this for decades. Right. (laughs) Is there any movement on it to actually make it real? So one initiative in the UK is saying that in 2030, they're hoping to launch a pilot, uh, an orbiter that will be a proof of concept for what they hope would become a whole fleet of satellites gathering solar energy. 2030. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'll have to wait for that. I hope it's not one of these things that's always 10 years away. (laughs) I mean, that's also a possibility. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's move on to something uh, more down to earth and, and happening right now. There's news that mental health apps... Mental health apps are keeping your data are not keeping your data as safe as you'd think. What's what's going on there? Right. So um, news broke that a an app that ran a crisis uh, hotline was actually recording that. And then they claimed they were anonymized. This was a non-for-profit, but then they were passing off this data, which they claimed had been anonymized so people couldn't be identified f- from it, mm-hmm. but then they were sending it to their two, uh, a for-profit branch of the of the that was connected with them, and using it to train AI models. So the idea wasn't that they were necessarily going to be publishing this data, but they were using it. It's valuable because they're selling it. If you sell it, exactly, yeah. exactly. So the problem is, is it. There wasn't necessarily an outside party checking on their work and being like, are you sure it's as anonymous as you think it should be? Uh And the other thing is just when people call a crisis hotline, they're in crisis. Some people are at their lowest moment. They don't necessarily want that information to be saved, let alone to be used and and made money off of. So the goal here was what? To train AI with with the data that people have. Exactly. There's been a lot of push with uh, for AIs that will identify emotions that could maybe pinpoint when someone is in crisis or uh, having a mental break um, or AI that is just better at customer service, AI that can detect how the person on the other end of the line is feeling and to respond to calm them down if they get upset, for instance. So this is a field that a lot of companies are investing a lot of money in and they need data to train right. all of their AI models. So where is the model currently falling short? Where are the regulations falling short? In what area? So direct-to-consumer um, 
software like this isn't necessarily covered by HIPAA, which is the act that, you know, prevents a doctor from talking about your personal medical information with your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's not regulations in place necessarily, but there has been uh, suggestions that maybe certain government regulators should be looking into this. And then there's also a push for the people who are developing this technology to in to, to have a step in your process where you consider, is it possible for the data that we're using to be de-anonymized right, and right. how can we protect it? Or to take another step and say, how is this model going to be used? You know, could it be, if, if it identifies that someone's in crisis, could it be used to automatically trigger a, a wellness check? You know, what what is going to happen to people if your AI thinks that they're in trouble? What are you going to be doing with that information? That's very interesting. Uh, let's talk about the holidays. They're just around the corner, right? And if you're if you're like me, you're thinking about food. I'm thinking I am. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know that there's a new study that gives us a sneak peek into what the earliest cooking looked like. Tell us about that. That's right. For the for some early humans, it wasn't turkey on the menu, but it was fish. Fish. So there's an archaeological site that is looking at the remains of human early human ancestors, possibly Homo erectus, from 780,000 years ago. And they found remains that suggest that they found these teeth from a fish. And based on the fact that they found teeth but not bones, they think this fish has been cooked. Cooking makes bones softer, and so they're more more likely to break down and not remain in the archaeological record. But teeth are a little sturdier, so they stayed behind. So they figured they were eating fish that they find old dishes piled up in the sink? (laughs) (laughs) They did find stone tools, but those weren't necessarily what was being used to cook the fish. Their evidence for this was the fish remains, and also they studied these leftover fish teeth and they, based on crystals in the tooth enamel, they determined that these weren't just eaten and then the remains tossed in a fire oh. to discard them. They think they were uh, at a lower temperature, so high enough to cook them, but not high enough to suggest they were just tossed in a fire. So they used tools then to cook them? Probably. They could have been, um, you know, laid near near the, the main source of heat to, to make it to make yeah. it hot enough to, to yeah. cook and eat it. Just like we do on the campfire. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, our cuisine has come a very long way, and we started here with grilled fish, <laughs> as you say. And now, ta drum roll, we have lab-grown meat. What's what's new on that front? It's, it's moving forward, isn't it? That's right. The FDA has approved lab-grown chicken for the first time. And so, um, at first, this is going to be available at a restaurant in uh, San Francisco, I believe. But eventually, they're hoping that it'll be uh, be be available to a broader range of people. Is, is it a whole chicken? Does it the chicken grow like different parts? Or is it just the breast or the wing or something? It's just the specific meat. So, yeah, this, this chicken starts as cells. And then right. the cells are in a bioreactor. And they're fed a slurry that encourages them to multiply. And so they you're, you're just going to get meat. You're not going to get like a, a drumstick, for do, instance. Do we know what it tastes like? I would guess that it tastes like chicken. There you go. <laughs> we have chicken that tastes like chicken. And how how far along are we? When when can I order this in my restaurant? Is it out there yet? I think the big obstacle here isn't necessarily going to be availability, but probably price. So, right. for instance, in Singapore, you can already, if you are if you want to go and t- take a trip to Singapore, you can buy lab-grown chicken there already. The problem is it's expensive. So it's likely that some of the companies that are making lab-grown meat are going to start by mixing their high-tech meat with uh. a plant-based meat substitute so that the price won't be too out of range. Sophie, always great to have you, and you bring such great stories for us. Uh, thank you for taking time to be with us today, and happy Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me. Sophie Bushwick is technology editor at Scientific American.